You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're going to be going back out west, and we have somewhat of a bonus episode where we're going to be receiving a migration update and habitat condition update. But this one is a bit unique because it relates to an area and a particular issue that we discussed on a few previous episodes. Uh, and, And in particular, we're going to be talking about habitat conditions and waterfowl migration uh, updates for the Klamath Basin and and the Klamath Basin region. To help us with this particular conversation, I'm happy to welcome a new guest to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, John Vradenberg, Supervisory Biologist for the Klamath Basin National Wildlife Refuge Complex. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Mike. At the outset here, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself uh, and your personal background, your professional background to our listeners. So let's take a minute and just have you do that. Tell us about yourself, John. Professionally, I've got a master's and a bachelor's degree from the University of Missouri, where I focused on wetland ecology primarily. I was a graduate student of Dr. Lee Fredrickson, so um, strong wetland background there and looked at bottomland hardwood forests in the boot hill of Missouri. Uh, So spent a lot of time tromping around down there. After leaving my graduate program, I actually worked for Ducks Unlimited for about five years in Southern Colorado in the San Luis Valley of Southern Colorado. So I was based out of the Bismarck office. And I was a part of a pilot program with Ducks Unlimited where we were integrating wetland managers on the landscape with state biologists to help deliver the habitat programs that we had put in place and give them some wetland management background to make sure the habitat we were putting on the ground was successful. Um, From there, I went to New Mexico where I started with the Fish and Wildlife Service and I became the supervisory biologist at Bosque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge in southern New Mexico. And that was a unique position. Um, I was the land management research demonstration biologist. So I traveled all over the West and helped take the scientific background and dilute it down and get it to the people that were doing the on the ground work, the equipment operators and biologists and and those sorts of folks to help them make sure that uh, they were putting projects on the ground, you know, thinking about wetland ecology and the resources and waterfowl they were trying to manage for. And from New Mexico, I came out here to the Klamath Basin sort of, was able to meet a childhood dream of working in the Klamath Basin. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I can remember reading Ducks Unlimited magazine when I was like six or seven years old and the Klamath Basin was, it seemed like it was in every magazine article because this place was, you know, such a renowned, world-renowned waterfowl destination. Um, so I, I always wanted to end up here. And when my predecessor, who you talked to before, Dave Mauser, retired, 
I came in and replaced Dave after his retirement. So I've been here now for going on my sixth year in the Klamath Basin. Thank you for that, John. The region where you are now, and that will be the focus of this conversation, is uh, is characterized today by some of the most complex and challenging issues that we have facing waterfowl, waterfowl habitats. And as you mentioned, we did have a series of episodes previously with uh, Dr. Dave Mauser and Dr. Mark Petrie, episodes 41, 42, and 43, where we went in depth into the these issues, the history of these issues, the importance of that region for waterfowl. And we concluded that three-part series with the discussion of where we are uh, and how far the Klamath Basin and the waterfowl habitats of that region have have fallen uh, from their heyday, from the time when they were world-renowned and hosted millions of waterfowl uh, during periods of migration. And we're not, on this particular episode, going to rehash all of those issues. We're not going to um, talk about kind of what what are the key key reasons and factors influencing all of that the purpose for this conversation is is to talk about uh, some some numbers the habitat conditions and waterfowl numbers that were shared or that that were shared recently i think there were some surveys conducted in november uh, and they demonstrate very effectively the rather sad consequences of some of what has happened in that region and that we talked at length about with dave and mark and so we thought this would be a a very natural compliment to those episodes uh, to because I, I know a number of things have happened in the Klamath Basin this year and we're going uh, we're going to touch on a couple of those so it, it's it's an area that is receiving a lot of attention right now that's having facing some issues and we wanted to help give an update on some of those uh, so as we go through this John feel free to expand on anything that I might be asking you here uh, as you deem appropriate because you certainly know those the issues out there uh, far better than me but I, I I want to start with with the the big issue that brought Klamath sort of to the to the spotlight in late summer, and that is the botulism outbreak. We spoke about that briefly with Mark and Dave, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to make any comments in regard to that, and and particularly, I, I think this is a pretty easy answer right now. But where we are relative to that botulism outbreak, I'm going to assume that it's it's kind of it's controlled, it has ended. But just yeah, what kind of remarks would you like to make with regard to the botulism outbreak that occurred this year? and then where we are in that respect. The botulism outbreak we had this year uh, was the worst on record since about the 1970s. And the total number that we were estimating right now, we we picked up somewhere around 25,000 birds. Um, We estimate the mortality was around 60,000 birds. We just can't can't get them all. Um, So we think we're somewhere around 60,000 birds. You know, and, and botulism is hard when we talk about it out here in the West because it, it does happen. It happens, you know, throughout the Western U.S. And when the conditions are right, you get these big outbreaks. Um, but in the Klamath, it's, it's a little bit of a different story um, because of, you know, we, we have these cross-seasonal effects that are happening here in terms of waterfowl ecology. So a lot of life cycle events are happening 
right around the same time that you get these botulism outbreaks. And, and so, you know, we, we have had historically a large uh, breeding population of waterfowl here. Um, and then we get a lot of early migrants and a lot of shorebirds come through. And as that relates to the state of California, that's a, a big issue because we're, we're seeing the California mallard population um, declining pretty dramatically. And that affects, you know, sportsmen in the Central Valley and, and elsewhere in the state of California. And when these botulism outbreaks happen, we, we not only have those birds that were, you know, nested here or were produced locally um, that are affected by the botulism, but we also get a large molt migration out of the Central Valley, especially from Sassoon Marsh. A lot of those birds, the mallards and gadwalls, come here. So you have a lot of, you know, pre-fledged juvenile ducks. You have a lot of hen mallards that are right in the middle of their molt. And then you get all those molt migrators on top of it. And in a year like this, when wetlands were just um, so limited, basin-wide, uh, it concentrated them all on, on what we call Thule Lake Sump 1A. Um, which does not have a history of botulism. I think the the largest botulism outbreak we've ever had on some point is about fifteen hundred birds. Um, you know, so it was just that that perfect storm of limited wetland habitat, limited availability, and a large concentration of those those traditional birds coming here. Um, you know, like I said, with the with the California mallard population the way it is, when you're losing those experienced and productive hens that becomes a big deal um, for the state of California and for the future of that population. John, you mentioned that I believe you estimate, you're, you're thinking the, the the number of birds that may have died as a result of the botulism was somewhere around 60,000. I believe you said you physically picked up 25,000. Yeah. Do you have an, an idea of, if the number that died was 60,000, what percentage of the number that would have been there uh, would that be? Do you have, I realize that's going to be something that's really difficult to estimate confidently, but do you have any idea of what that number might be? No, we, we don't have a good good feel for that. You know, the, the size of these refuges makes it really hard to survey. And some of, the, some of our early estimates um, from the ground surveys, we were thinking we had somewhere around 200,000 birds. Um, between the local birds and the molt migrators that we're in, you know, so a little less than 50,000 we may have lost to 50 or 50 percent. Yeah, a lot of a lot of times when I ask these impossible questions, sometimes it's almost easier to think of it in terms of an order of magnitude. It's more likely 200,000 than than uh, 2 million, right? You know, yeah, so we yeah. can kind of, we're not talking about uh, 60,000 out of 2 million dying and just kind of, yeah. uh, it's more, more likely to be more close to the 200,000. It's kind of what we're saying there. Yeah. Um, about how, how long did that outbreak last and when did you really see it, uh, see the effects of it come to an end? Oh, it, it was an, an odd year um, for sure. You know, we normally, we start our botulism surveys first part of July. That's usually when we're starting to get daytime temperatures in the 90s and nighttime temperatures in the 50s. It was such an odd year out here in the West with all the fires. And we actually had a big fire um, going on south of the refuge. And so our access to the sump was really limited, you know, both physically and visibility wise. We couldn't, you know, see the sump very well. Um, we started to see a, a few birds um, trying to think of the exact day. It was, you know, second week of July. Um, we started to see a few sick birds and then that fire came and, and access was really restricted. 
um, everywhere for the, the safety of the firefighters. And when we got the, the green light to go out, um, you know, we could see a few birds on the shore and we finally got on the water and picking up birds and um, they were just everywhere. And it, it was like that pretty much from the middle of the July, middle of July to the first of October um, was just every day we were picking up new fresh birds and we didn't get, we normally frost first week, second week of September here. And we didn't get a, a good frost until middle of October. Um, we were actually, we had the botulism outbreak was still going on, you know, once hunting season had opened and we were trying to get another unit open for hunting and we couldn't open it until we could get out there and, and get a good idea of what was happening. And that was October 20th that we finally got out there. Wow. We picked up, we were picking up a thousand birds a day in just a couple hours out there just from, you know, a new outbreak that happened that we didn't have access to until the water got high enough that we could get in there and start picking up the birds. So it was a, it was an odd, odd botulism outbreak. We normally, you know, I, I think of, you know, four to six weeks that we may be dealing with botulism and this lasted almost three months. Yeah. Well, that makes me wonder then, I think when I, at the time when I was speaking with Mark and Dave, I think we all collectively assumed that the, the outbreak had probably come to an end by that time, just because of the way nor temperatures normally operate there. And But it sounds like we were probably mistaken in that regard. I don't remember the, exactly the timing, but uh, we would have been close. But, but things are, uh, I guess by now, the there's no remaining sign of the outbreak. No, it's, it's gone now. Yeah. We've, we've been getting pretty good freezes. We're starting to ice over and um, yeah, the, the concern for botulism now is gone. Um, you know, now we start to, now we start watching the weather and start worried about cholera outbreaks. Um, that's yeah. the next big thing that comes. And, you know, so we're, we're out surveying when we can looking for cholera outbreaks at this point, but most of the white, white geese are gone and they, they tend to be the ones that we, we start to see the big cholera outbreaks happening with. John, that, that provides a bit of a useful transition here. Uh, a couple of things I'll say. First, as I try to try to remember to do on all of these is state when it is we are recording these just for the sake of, you know, temporal relevancy. We are recording this episode on December 22nd. That gives you an idea of the time frame within which we're referencing some of these conditions. And so I now want to transition to our to the to the what I think will be the meat of our discussion. And that relates to some habitat and waterfowl surveys that were conducted in November. I the, these were uh, these were shared with me by our colleague, Dr. Mark Petrie, because he knew that we had just talked about conditions in the Klamath and he knew I'd want to, uh, I'd be interested in these. And that's where we had this idea of, of well, you know, it'd be something that that's worth talking in, in a bit more detail about. So, so here we are. The surveys in reference, I believe, were were conducted in early November, uh, maybe November 2nd. You can tell me if I'm correct there. But I think to start with, tell us about the surveys themselves. How are they conducted? Who conducts them? Uh, and have any others been conducted since then? And then we will kind of step through what it is that we saw. You know, the Klamath Basin is, is unique. Um, and unless you really get on the ground to see these wetlands, it's hard to really capture how big they are, but they're almost impossible to survey by ground. You just, you can't see across them and, you know, visual obscurity is pretty high when you get the dense vegetation and stuff. So you, you have to do aerial surveys on these refuges. And so we work collaboratively with the Migratory Bird Program. 
And we have a pilot biologist and an observer that do biweekly surveys um, beginning in September and going through usually the end of April, trying to you know stay as consistent as we can every two weeks just to get that migra- migration phenology down and, and see how we're tracking on any given year. I don't want to misspeak here, but I believe this is one of the longest running aerial survey data sets in the United States. Um, we've been flying them, I think, starting in the 1940s is when they started flying aerial surveys on this complex. We've changed the way we do them a little bit. We run them on a transect, uh, you know, so we get repeatable surveys each time. Um, and then we, you know, we get a population estimate and then we figure out, you know, what the what that population is based on that estimate. But uh, we've been doing it that way now for five years with the Migratory Bird Program. Have you conducted any additional surveys since that November survey? After the November 2nd uh, survey, COVID really started to blow up again, pretty heavy in Oregon and California. And so all flights were grounded at that time. Um, it was just deemed that it, it wasn't in the, the best interest of the pilot or the observer to be in the air together. So. Um, yeah, so we don't have any data going past that, which is, you know, it, it's a bummer that we couldn't track it through the year. But generally, we do tend to see our populations peak somewhere around the end of October, first part of November. So we probably came close um, to getting the peak, if if not right on getting the peak. I don't know if you've even how much you've been able to get on the ground um, here lately. Do you have any sense, even if it's just gut feel on how, if habitat conditions have improved or if numbers have improved? Yeah, I, I get on the ground a couple of days a week. Um, I, I'm allowed to make, you know, drive through surveys to check on habitat, check on water um, and look at bird numbers. And um, I, I, I believe, you know, my gut feeling is the numbers have dropped since that November survey and the habitat conditions have not improved. So the numbers that we're about to talk about uh, would probably, as you said, um, there's good indication that they're probably close to a to a peak, if not the peak. So, so let's do that, John. Uh, there's there's both a bird number component to this. There's also a habitat component in terms of the amount of uh, the amount of wetland area. Uh, where does that wetland area come from? Is that a type of remote sensing analysis or something that that y'all do? So that comes from we we generally can take the amount of water we're getting into the refuge and we can correlate that out to a a percentage flooded that we have as well as we do track you know we have staff gauges and we can track those staff gauges back to the footprint of the wetlands especially on the lower Klamath side we have that down pretty tight on the Thule Lake side it's a it's a little bit looser because we have the overlay of all the agricultural land on Thule Lake as well the wetland footprint is pretty set on Thule Lake for the agricultural Flooded agricultural footprint can vary quite a bit from year to year, um, but on a lower Klamath, you know, we we generally estimate that it takes three acre feet of water for one acre of flooded land, and so we can, you know, as our water's coming in, we we have a rough estimate of how much we're flooding at any given time. I guess to to provide some context for people that may not have listened to the, the maybe may be listening to this episode but have not yet listened to the previous episodes with Dave and Mark I guess I would certainly encourage you to go listen to those but also just be aware that the the wetlands that we're talking about here are not 
rain-driven, uh, not precipitation-driven. I'm going to ask John to speak to make sure I don't misspeak here. But the water that we're talking about here comes from uh, from, from an allocation of some type of irrigation water or um, from an irrigation project. And that was discussed in detail with Mark and Dave. But do I have that generally correct, John? We're not talking about rain or snow that's driving water levels in any of these wetlands in that basin, right? Well, to a certain degree. I mean, they, this is a snowpack-driven system. So most of our most of our storage um, does come from the snowpack in the Cascades and the, the Eastern Mountains. But you're correct in that that water does generally come in and it's stored in um, irrigation systems and then it is allocated out across all the users within the Klamath Project. Okay. So I just want to make sure we clarified that in case people were wondering about rainfall and how that may be influencing it. Uh, so what can you tell us about the, uh, about, yeah, the, the habitat conditions, wetland conditions this year, and I think in particular how they compared to what you typically saw in some past years? Pretty devastating. Lower Klamath, you know, for all intents and purposes is dry. Um, we do have about 2,000 acres of semi-permanent wetland um, that is flooded at this point. The way our water comes to the refuge, it, it goes into one large wetland first. And, and with the little bit of water that did come um, early in the spring last year and a little bit of water that's coming at this point, that wetland is, is flooded. But the rest of, we weren't able to bring any of our seasonal wetlands online. We have none of our agriculture is flooded and we have no additional semi-permanent wetlands flooded. So, you know, from a migration standpoint, a waterfowl standpoint, it's pretty much off the map this year. Thule Lake is faring a little bit better. The, the way Thule Lake is set up, I mean, as you talked with, with Mark and Dave, Thule Lake has a large agricultural footprint embedded in it. And that functions on both a lease and a cooperative farming agreement. And then the Thule Lake Irrigation District oversees the water and the water management out there and, and their water right. They, they did receive a percentage of their water right this past year. And some of that water was able to be used to move around um, to some of the flooded agricultural land. From a wetland standpoint, there's two what we call sumps. They're the remnants of historic Thule Lake, which, you know, historically Thule Lake was, you know, I think Dave talked about it, it ranged from 80,000 to like 140,000 acre wetland. Um, the two sumps now represent about 12,000 acres of the historic lake bed. And one of those sumps this year, we did a managed drawdown on. We, we didn't realize the drought conditions we were going into, so we went ahead and did a managed drawdown on that. We got really good seasonal wetland vegetation, but we didn't have any water to flood it. So this winter, we've went ahead and conducted a partial winter drawdown on the bigger sump, sump 1A, to fill sump 1B and get that food available to the birds, and then move some of that water out onto the flooded agricultural land to get some carbohydrates out there for the birds um, through some of the grain fields. And then we'll, you know, move all that water back into the bigger sum. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Um, going into the spring. 
John, from a historical perspective, uh, and you might have to just ballpark this, if you were to look at the wetland footprint in, in those combined complexes this year, early November, and kind of compare it to, I don't know, the 90s, what percentage, if the 90s were a good era, I can't remember if that's exactly the case or not, um, what percentage of that historical managed wetland footprint would we be looking at that has water on it this year? Uh, between the two refuges, I would, you know, I'm just guessing here, you know, just trying to to think about it. I would say it's somewhere around 10%. Wow. Compared to the 90s. That's not the tra trajectory that we would like to see things going, that's for sure. But uh, it seems in too often we those are the stories that we that we well I mean I guess to be clear there are some good stories out there across the country in terms of the the things that we're doing for waterfowl but we also want to bring these stories to people about where things are going in a direction opposite of what we need them to in order to support waterfowl populations and the people that appreciate that resource uh, at the levels that we uh, that we're trying to achieve so this is certainly one of those stories and we we talk about these likely impacts, likely effects uh, quite a bit. This is an area where we have a long record of, uh, of the measurable effects of, of habitat and, the, and what it produces for the ducks and how the ducks respond to that. And so that's, of course, the nature of this particular update. Uh, so with a very small wetland footprint, as you've described here this year, John, the natural expectation is that we would see much reduced bird use. Uh, so uh, here's where I ask you, what did you see with respect to duck and goose usage of those areas uh, based on your November survey? We saw exactly what we expected, I guess. Um, the birds just didn't come to the base and they flew either over the basin or they found other areas to go to. And that, and that's a big issue uh, because, you know, you, you talked about it in the previous podcast, you know, this was the primary staging area for the Pacific flyway waterfowl population, both ducks, geese, and, and, and swans as well. And we would get, you know, even in the nineties and, you know, early 2000s, we were somewhere around 85 or 90 percent of the entire Pacific Flyway staged here in the Klamath Basin. And that's really, you know, that's important from a waterfowl ecology standpoint, but it's also important from an agricultural standpoint in the Central Valley because those birds staying here, um, that helps them stay in the Klamath Basin as the rice is coming out in the Central Valley and they're getting habitat online in the Central Valley. And so when we don't have that habitat that's staging those birds, we see a much earlier entrance date into the Central Valley. And this year, uh, talking to colleagues in the Central Valley, I mean, they were hitting record numbers beginning early in September. And that just continued on to where they had, you know, they were they were at numbers they haven't seen by the time opening weekend of waterfowl season happened in in California, which I think is middle of October. And we were we were seeing nothing. Um, you know, I guess the the question we all wonder is, you know, what how's that going to play out then with the you know larger waterfowl ecology questions? How long are those food resources going to hold out in the Central Valley? Is that going to result in an earlier migration back to the Klamath if we don't have habitat here in the Klamath? What's that going to mean for body condition as those birds are going north? And you start to get this these compounding effects when you start to see these 
pieces of the landscape, these pieces of the puzzle are, are falling out. Um, so that's what we're really struggling with now. And I think you touched on that with Mark, with some of the research that we have proposed to start understanding these bigger landscape dynamics in the context of, of not only waterfowl, but the habitat availability that all these, these wetland-dependent wildlife are, are keying in on. What do we know, John, about the relative importance of Klamath in spring versus fall? Does it get historically a great deal of use in the spring as well? And are we expecting some uh, limited wetland conditions in the spring at this point? Yeah, so there's a lot of research that has come out of the Intermountain West Joint Venture lately, looking at some of the landscape in the context of wetland footprint and changing wetland footprint over the past 40 years. And, you know, we do have a higher degree of confidence that there's going to be wetlands available in the spring. Um, just because, like we had mentioned earlier, this is a snowpack-driven system um, throughout what we call Sonic, which is Southern Oregon, Northeastern California, um, even out into Nevada and parts of Idaho. And, you know, all these big snowpack systems, they get that that snow release and that water release in the spring. And there's a lot of flood irrigation from hay producers and cattle producers that's happening throughout this sonic region. And so in the spring, we tend to see what, you know, we, we would anticipate that things would be worse in the spring, but they tend to be pretty good in the spring across sonic because of that, that more natural driver in the system. The big problem with that research is showing that the, the big bottleneck is in the fall. Um, there's not a lot of that flood irrigation happening in the fall. Most of those guys have, they've taken their hay crops off. They've done their irrigation. Um, there's not a lot of irrigation going on anywhere, whether it's hay or um, crop production. And so most of the wetland footprint, when you get down to this mid-continent part of the flyway is on publicly managed lands, whether that's state or federal lands. And, and that's where we're seeing the big pinch right now. There's just not water in the fall when those birds are coming down for the fall migration. So spring, spring, we feel pretty good about still fall is the big unknown. And, um, you know, that's what a lot of, uh, Mark in the intermountain West joint venture research is looking at right now, trying to understand those landscape bottlenecks, um, across those life history events, those non-breeding life history events. Coming back to our discussion about what you saw this fall, uh, and, and how the depleted wetland conditions have translated into a reduced number of, of ducks and geese on those areas. We, that seems pretty, pretty obvious. We talk about that a lot. And, but the other thing that is, of course, important and that we can also expect to you know, kind of suffer as a result of this is hunting opportunities. What can you tell me, John, about uh, about that side of it. Obviously, we manage these resources uh, f because people like to pursue them. We manage resources for the sustainability of the populations, but also to give people opportunities to enjoy them in various ways. And hunting is a key part of that. What can you tell me about the hunting? Uh, we can either talk about hunting opportunity or hunting success uh, this year. And, you know, what are you hearing in regard to either of those? The opportunities are definitely um, limited, ex especially here on the on the refuge. Um, there, there is some opportunity. Um, some folks have been able to flood off refuge, and some of the state areas have some 
some water. But here on the refuge, opportunity was definitely limited. Uh, Lower Klamath was, we, we closed Lower Klamath um, with the exception of dry field hunting. Um, and, and there was a little bit of dry field hunting early in the season for both ducks and geese, but it's, it's pretty limited at this point. And Thule Lake, um, because it's one of the only places with water in the basin right now, had opportunity, a lot of hunting pressure this year. And, you know, that, that, that high hunting pressure and low number of birds and limited places to hunt, you know, translated pretty quickly to tough hunting conditions for a lot of the guys. Um, there's, there's some folks that are doing well. Um, they spent a lot of time scouting and, and put a lot of homework in and they're, they're doing okay. But compared to years past, um, the harvest is, is pretty low. What kind of feedback are you getting from some of the hunter constituents there? I mean, the this, this story of what's happening there at Klamath, I, I think is, is probably fairly well known there locally, but what's the reaction of, of some of the hunters and some of the other stakeholders there? Uh, people are frustrated. Um, you know, I don't interact a ton with a lot of the hunters that, you know, more of our hunt program deals with the hunters one-on-one, but I, I interact with enough of them. I mean, there, there's a lot of frustration, you know, here in the basin, there's such a long tradition of waterfowl hunting and we have guys that have been coming here. You know, we, we have guides on the refuge that have been guiding here since the late sixties, early seventies. And, you know, they saw it go from the heydays to what we have now. And, you know, I think there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of confusion. You know, there, there is a lot of information on what's happening in the basin and, and word is getting out and people you know, understand it a little bit better, but it's still, because it is such a complicated situation here, I don't think unless people are really investing into trying to learn as much as they can about the Klamath Basin, um, it's hard to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and, and understand how that is affecting individuals that want to come here, especially, you know, the, I think the local folks have a pretty good understanding and they see it every day and, you know, they, they get it from all sides of the story, but the people that traditionally travel into the basin to them, I, you know, I think the Klamath Basin is a destination and they probably don't think a whole lot about it outside of when they would make their traditional trips up here. And so they show up and it's as drastically changed as it was this year. And it's just a big shock and they don't quite understand, you know, why these wetlands are dry this year. Just to reiterate on this episode, we're not going to, we don't have the time. We spent two and a half hours with Mark and Dave stepping through all that has happened. So if people are thinking, well, what's the issue? What's the issue? Well, the only thing I can tell you is you're going to have to go listen to episodes uh, 41, 42, and 43, because there's no possible way that we can rehash what's going on here on, on this episode. So I kind of apologize for that if you're in the dark on on the specifics of the issues, but the information is out there on previous episodes here. So definitely encourage you to go listen to those. Um, John, I guess a few remaining questions here. The hunting is the waterfowl hunting season still open? Are there still a few lim- uh, still a few opportunities there in the basin? Yep, we're still hunting. You know, there's a lot of folks still on the refuge chasing ducks and chasing geese. And there's still a few birds around. I, I would, you know, I, I don't have a good estimate on how many, I guess somewhere between 30 and 50,000 birds are still on the refuge. Uh, this time of year, we start to get a little bit of back and forth between the Central Valley. Um, we'll get these warm days where the ice will break up and you'll get birds coming from the Central Valley and then they'll go back down. And so there, 
there are, there are still a lot of hunters out there. We go into about the, in the California side to about the second week of January, third week for geese. Um, Oregon is about the same. And then, you know, we, we have a pretty strong following with the spring goose season here, the white front and the snow goose season. So um, that's almost becoming as popular, if not more popular than the general waterfowl season, I think for a lot of folks. Um, so we'll, we'll have waterfowl hunting happening, you know, all the way through February, somewhere in the, in the Klamath Basin. John, one thing that we want to discuss before we, uh, before we let it slip past is uh, actually what you saw in terms of, of duck numbers. We've talked already here about there's, there's some still birds still remaining, but, uh, but with regard to that October survey, what were the numbers that you saw and how do they compare to any type of historical average that you might have? Yeah, so I, I don't have the exact numbers here in front of me. Um, I, I roughly under know what they are, but I think we were right around 110,000 birds between the two refuges. I think it was 80,000, 80, 80 85,000 on Tule Lake and about 30, 35,000 on Lower Klamath, um, which is for both refuges, uh, as far as I know, those are the lowest records or lowest numbers in recorded history or since we've been doing surveys. And to put it into perspective, you went over in the podcast, but I always like to, you know, look back at history because history is telling us, you know, the, it's those trends that are important. We we can't account for the annual variation that happens, but it's the trend that's, you know, the really key thing. And so if we go back to the 1950s, we're looking at the numbers we saw this year. It's a 98% decline in peak waterfowl population since the 1950s. And it's a 92% decline since the 1970s, which are what we base all the NAWAP numbers off. And, you know, how we look at our energetic management, all the true map modeling that um, Mark and Bruce Duggar from Oregon State University did. You know, so when, when we start looking at those kind of numbers, that's where I'm starting to get more nervous because that's a, that's a lot of ground to make up. And we have the potential um, when when the water's here and the conditions are right, the birds respond. I mean, in the in the six years I've been here, you know, we've bounced around from what we're seeing this year to we've had years between the two refuges that we were at, you know, 1.5 billion birds. I think to me, it's that instability in the trend that I think is what we need to address. It's just going back to the life history. This is a staging area, and you know, staging is a traditional response they're making to the landscape. And when you start to see those numbers bouncing between a hundred thousand to, you know, one and a half million, that just says the habitat's not as stable as it needs to be in this key area. John, that provides a useful transition to one of the other things. And perhaps the last thing that I wanted to talk about, we, it was how we concluded the episodes with Mark and Dave, and that's with the, we tried to find a, an optimistic note to end on. And that takes us to the to a discussion about ongoing conservation efforts or uh, conservation efforts that we're that we're trying to develop or that we're hoping to develop going forward. What can you share? Um, either maybe things that we've already covered with Mark and Dave, but you might want to say any words about, or any other thing that perhaps we didn't cover with Mark and Dave with regard to how are we going to. What are our best opportunities to improve conditions in the Klamath Basin? Yeah, I, I guess I would start off saying that I, I'm hopeful because we have to be hopeful. 
Um, this place is too important to not be hopeful. And it's got such a long history and such an important history, um, not only for the local community, but for waterfowl hunters, waterfowl enthusiasts in general. This place is just, you talk about waterfowl in North America and the Klamath Basin is one of those places that just, it's part of every conversation. It's you know, we, we learned about climate basin and waterfowl ecology going through graduate school. You know, it's just one of those places that's in our, in our tradition um, as a waterfowling community. So we have to be hopeful. And, and I'm going to stay hopeful because if we can see this place change, what an amazing conservation success that will be for all of us. You know, so I'm, I'm always hopeful. I, I'm not going to be pessimistic and move forward pessimistically. In light of that, there's a lot of really good things that are happening. First and foremost, foremost, awareness of this place is coming back. And that's important because awareness is what, you know, drives relevancy and relevancy is what keeps these places important um, on the landscape. Uh, and with that, we've been able to put forward a lot of land management programs, a lot of research programs um, that I'm really excited about. Um, you know, the one that I'm most connected with right now is I'm working with Oregon State University with Dr. Bruce Duggar and Dr. Christian Hagen. And we're trying to better understand the value of these tall emergent perennial wetlands um, for overwater nesting waterfowl and water birds. So we're getting ready. We have a, a pilot project going on for that. Um, we're going to probably focus on redheads. They're a state species of concern for California. Um, so we're going to be marking a lot of birds, doing telemetry work and trying to figure that out. Um, we're working with Ducks Unlimited in the Intermountain West Joint Venture right now on that research I mentioned earlier, trying to understand from a landscape perspective what's happening, what what has happened to wetlands, and when when is that happening? When in the life cycle are these habitat deficits happening, and what does that mean for the Pacific Flyway? So we're we're doing that. We've got a lot of large scale wetland restoration projects going on with the focus of trying to get more resiliency back on the landscape so we don't end up in a year like this where we have, you know, one big wetland in the Klamath Basin that all the birds are coming to that we we can get several big wetlands that we can get the birds spread out um, and try to avoid these concentrations when these we spotulism events happening. And I think most importantly is, you know, as the Fish and Wildlife Service, as the Klamath Basin complex staff, we're just continuing to build on the partnerships, you know, that we have with the conservation community, with the state community, with the agricultural community, the water users, tribes, everybody that's a key stakeholder on the landscape, just building those partnerships, building the trust back up, you know, so we can all as stakeholders trust each other so we can have those conversations to move forward um, and understand that, you know, we're, we're moving together collectively. We don't have to be moving independently, that it's going to take a collective effort to turn this around, not just for us, but for everybody. The water issues, you know, they, they get personal for us because it's affecting the resources and the lands and the, the things that are key to us as, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the refuge system and waterfowl hunters. But if we're going to be honest and true about that, we have to look at the landscape and see that it's affecting a lot of people. And so I, I think that 
building that trust, getting those partnerships and, and being able to move forward collectively is, is where we're going to find our greatest success. So we we invest a lot of time and energy and effort into to doing that at this time right now. I love the optimistic tone, uh, John, and you're right. We have to have that. There are in this in natural resource conservation uh, arena, there are there's no shortage of challenges and threats to to these resources that that all of all of society appreciates in some way or another. And as we've seen many times, great challenges require great partnerships to to find solutions to those problems. And it certainly sounds like you are envisioning that type of approach uh, in the Klamath Basin. And and that gives me hope. As someone looking at things from uh, from afar, uh, there are there are success stories that we can point to in other regions where creativity and um, and passion and commitment to uh, to solutions to these problems will yield results. And it sounds like we've got the right person in place out there, uh, along with all the partners. I certainly appreciate the optimistic tone that you have. Uh, so, John, anything else that you wanted to leave our listeners with? Nope, I had just. Thank you for the time, Mike. Thanks for letting us get on and um, talk about the basin. It's an amazing place. Yeah, well, I look forward to getting out there someday. That's one of the places I have not yet set foot in, uh, but I aim to change that at some point. And so, yeah, hope to meet you at that at that time. So with that, John, I'll, I'll say thank you. I'll also wish you a Merry Christmas and, and Happy New Year. We are just a few days away uh, from Christmas Day. So thank you. And I know we're all looking forward to moving into 2021. And so I hope to, hope to catch up with you sometime next year, maybe. So thank you, John. All right. Happy holidays. Thanks, Mike. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, John Vradenberg, Supervisory Biologist with the Klamath Basin National Wildlife Refuge Complex. We greatly appreciate his insight on this very unique story, very challenging story that we've covered in some depth here on a few episodes on the podcast. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does editing these podcasts and getting them out to you. And of course, to you, our listener, we thank you for your time and support of the podcast. And we thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.